Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. Well, you guys know that today is a good day, and uh, Dave's just given us one of the reasons why today's a good day, because God... It's a great day. It's a great day. And God continues to do amazing things. And he's still on the throne. And he's a good God. He's a good God. Well, many of you know that, uh, that I'm from Florida. And I also spent a little bit of time in California. And so I'm, I'm an American. I'm also a Canadian. I got my dual citizenship quite a few years ago. Uh, and so I've, I've got both citizenships right now. But I remember when I was first coming up to Canada, I knew nothing about Canada. In fact, the first time I saw a map of North America, I, I didn't know what it was. And I, I'd been raised, like, I mean, I wasn't, I'm not a dumb person. Like, I, I know geography a little bit. Uh, but all the, all the maps that I had ever seen of North America was just the USA. And, it, and then all of a sudden I saw this map with this, the US had a hat. On it. It was really kind of weird. It was this top thing. And I thought, oh, well, that's Canada. That makes a lot of sense. But I'd never seen that before. I also remember that uh, when I came to Canada, not knowing anything about Canada except for what I had seen in the movies, um, I knew Canada had snow year round, like all the time. And, and there were sled dogs and igloos and all the fun things, right? So I had this expectation in my mind when I flew into Regina on September 1st, back in 1996. And I wore my warmest California jacket, which thankfully wasn't very warm because it was boiling in Regina, Saskatchewan in 1996 on September 1st. I just had no idea what it was going to be like. I remember the first time I ate poutine. Oh my goodness, what a gift! Poutine is. Isn't that fantastic? If you've not had poutine lately, go have poutine today. It is really good. Back in Florida, we had something called biscuits and gravy, and likely some of you have had biscuits and gravy as well. Make sure it's sausage gravy, not turkey gravy, but biscuits and gravy. And that is a gift. If you haven't had biscuits, biscuits and gravy, you need to have biscuits and gravy. But I, I, I've asked myself this question the last 25 years of living in Canada. How in the world has, have Americans not gotten poutine yet? Like, it seems very Amer- American, doesn't it? Like, greasy and fat and just, just fantastic. I'm just surprised that the, the Americans haven't gotten onto this yet. I remember when I figured out what a toque was. I'd never worn a toque in my life. I thought it was a weird word, but when it got to minus 50 in Saskatchewan, I had, like, two toques on. It was great. And I, speaking of which, like... So I understand our, our culture is made up by our environment as well, but who in the world goes to a place that gets to minus 50 and thinks, this is a great place to live. I'm going to spend my winters here. This is wonderful. Anyhow, um, I started calling chocolate bars, I started calling candy bars chocolate bars, which is apparently the proper way of saying it. I started calling trash cans garbage cans, uh, but I still tell my kids to go put their tennis shoes on. And they always go, but we're not playing tennis. I'm like, but that, I don't know what runners are. So apparently I call them the wrong thing. And I still can't, can't quite figure out the political system. American and Canadian culture, though it looks very similar, is very different in a lot of ways. 
Every culture has its own peculiarity, strangeness about it, about its customs, about its foods, about its beliefs. Our culture even affects how we think, the the way that we form thoughts and the way that we, we express our emotions, the way that we dress and the way that we behave. Culture is significant. And whenever you interact with another culture, you need to be aware that some of the things that you do and think and all of that, some of those things are different between you and the other person of a different culture. I'll give you an example. I serve on the licensing board for our denomination, which basically means that there's a group of us that if you want to be a pastor in the Alliance, you come and you sit in an interview where we ask you a bunch of questions to try to figure out, are you called to be a pastor? Do you have the gifts and the skills that you need? Do you have the knowledge that you need to be a pastor? Uh, And if you pass that interview, you become a pastor within the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Once we had um, this amazing brilliant, bright uh, indigenous man come uh, to sit before us to become a pastor within the Christian Missionary Alliance. He answered all of our questions really well. We knew that he was called and gifted and knowledgeable, and he passed the interview with high marks. He did a really good job. But while we were in the room for deliberations, so he sits in the interview, and then he leaves the room, and then we talk about, has he passed the test? While he was gone, one of the board members made the comment that while he had answered all the questions really well, he hardly ever made eye contact. And and they thought, like, what a rude thing. Like, why why would he not even look at us in the eye? It felt, in our culture, very dodgy. But, thankfully, someone else spoke up and said, actually, in indigenous culture, prolonged eye contact is a sign of disrespect. So when he came into the room to a committee who, in his eyes, were kind of like his elders, he would not make eye contact with us. But it was a sign of respect, not a sign of dodginess. But right here in Canada, we have different cultures right here. And sometimes we can step on people's toes if we don't understand the difference of the culture that we're in or the culture that we're visiting. Which brings us to the church in Corinth. Now, we're going to get into the book of Corinthians today, but the book of Corinthians is in the Bible. And something we need to understand whenever we come to Scripture is that this Bible was written by the, by the Holy Spirit, of course, through people, but it was written to a vastly different culture than our own. And not only was it written to a, a culture that was vastly different than a North American culture, it was written in a different time, 2,000 years ago. Things have changed in 2,000 years a lot. And the Bible was written, or the New Testament at least, was written 2,000 years ago. The Old Testament was written far before that. And not only was it written to a different culture thousands of years ago, but it was written in a different language. And that language has been translated as best as it possibly can be. But sometimes, even in the translation, we don't fully comprehend the message that was going forward as this Bible was written Now, of course, these scriptures are vastly important to us. And God has meant the Bible to not just be a handbook, uh, not just to be a book written to people that lived thousands of years ago, but also the Bible is God's holy written word for us. It's living and it's active and it's applicable and it's foundational to our lives. But we cannot ignore that there are cultural and historical and, and translational factors that we need to be aware of as we read the Bible. And so we're grateful 
that we have the helper, the Holy Spirit, the one who wrote the Bible through people. We have the Holy Spirit here to speak to us and to lead us and to help to, to illuminate the scriptures for us so that we can understand what scripture, what God is trying to speak to us. So why am I telling you all of this about the historical and cultural and, and translational differences in the Bible? Well, it's important to understand this whenever we come to Scripture, but today it's vitally important to what we're going to look at in the book of 1 Corinthians, especially in chapter 11, which has some very significant cultural stuff going on. There's two parts to this chapter. I hope you've had a chance to read ahead. If you haven't read 1 Corinthians 11 yet, make sure you read it later on today. But there's two parts to this chapter that seem like they're two totally separate subjects, but they're deeply connected, and hopefully you'll see why by the time we get to the end of the sermon. The first half of chapter 11 deals with men and women and head coverings. But before we get there, I want to I tell you a story about a culturally significant, precedent-setting moment in the life of Jesus. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we read a story in John chapter 4. It's a story of Jesus going through a place called Samaria and meeting a woman at a well. Here's the story briefly. Jesus and his disciples are going to Galilee. And he's going to minister there, but to get to Galilee, he goes through Samaria, which actually was a little bit off of his beaten path, but Jesus had a reason for going this way. So he went through Samaria, Samaria and uh, he comes close to a town, and he tells his disciples, go into the town, buy some food, I'm going to wait for you here at this well. So while Jesus is all by himself sitting at this well, at about midday, a woman comes to the well to draw water, and Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. And Jesus says something to her that's astounding. Jesus reveals to this woman that he is the Messiah, the one who is promised to Israel, the one who is promised to the world to come as the Savior. He reveals that to this woman. It's the first person that he has revealed to, any, to anywhere, the first person that he has told that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is this Samaritan woman at the well. It's strange not just because... Jesus has revealed this for the very first time. It's also strange because of who this woman is. Jesus has not told anybody else that he's the Messiah, but here he is alone with this woman speaking to her, and he begins to tell her this story about who he is. But it's weird because, first off, she's a woman. And now, in our, our culture, it's not a problem. Like, if you were at the, the post office and someone from the opposite sex came up to talk to you, you'd be like, no problem, I could talk to them. But in this culture, men just don't talk to women. And so it's very strange. This is like strike one for this person, this woman. She's a woman. And Jesus should not have been speaking to her, especially when he was alone. So that's kind of strike one in this, this experience here. Strike two is that she's a Samaritan. Now, we don't understand this very much here, uh, but you may understand that Samaritans and Jewish people just did not talk to each other. They actually were like enemies. They didn't like each other. They used to, to stay away from each other. They worshipped in different places. They, they did different things. They just did not hang out together. And so this Jewish man should not have been talking to this Samaritan woman. This is kind of strike two. Culturally, they should not have been talking to each other. Strike three is that this woman was a bit of a hot mess. 
The reason that she came to the well in the middle of the day, which was the hottest part of the day, which is unusual, all the women would come at the beginning of the day, in the morning, or maybe later in the day when things had cooled off. Nobody came at the middle of the day. But this woman shows up in the middle of the day. The reason she came at the middle of the day is because she wanted to avoid everybody else. She wanted to avoid the other people in town because she was a bit of a hot mess. She lived a very hot, a very rough life. She had been married five different times. She was currently living with a man who was not her husband. And all of this was incredibly scandalous to her community. So she tried her best to avoid everybody. Three strikes. She's a woman. She's a, she's a, she's a Samaritan. And she's living a scandalous life. There was no way that Jesus should have even started a conversation, conversation with her. But here... Jesus reveals to her, the very first person ever, that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The woman is so blown away from meeting Jesus, from having this experience with Jesus, that she goes back into the Samaritan town that's right there. She goes back into town, and she begins telling everybody to come and see Jesus. Come and see this man. I think he's the Messiah. Come see Jesus. Her day started off by avoiding everybody that she possibly could, but now here she is running up to everyone who will listen to tell them about Jesus. This scandalous Samaritan woman becomes Jesus the Messiah's first missionary. And many Samaritans, if you read to the end of this John chapter 4, many come to faith in Jesus Christ because she told them about him. What a crazy story. It's significant. It's so significant. Like, as, as any of the readers of John, as they were reading this story, they would have been blown away by, by what had just transpired. It's a culturally significant, precedent-setting moment right there. So now let's look at the first half of 1 Corinthians 11. It's, this passage is oftentimes skipped. When people teach through 1 Corinthians, they'll teach all about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and then they'll start teaching about 1 Corinthians chapter 11 halfway through. They'll skip this first half, because it's an incredibly strange and confusing half of a chapter of Scripture. Some people will use this passage to kind of teach what they think it teaches, which we'll talk about in a moment, but most people skip it because it's a very confusing passage of Scripture. The, the, the thing that's, that's so difficult in this passage of Scripture is that there's this weird thing that goes on between men and women and about head coverings. It's a very strange section if you've read it already, if you know about it. Some people, many people actually, use this passage of Scripture to promote male authority over women. The problem is that this passage of Scripture does not teach male authority over women. The reason that this passage is used to promote male authority over women is mostly because of the, the way that this passage uses the word head. Let me show you one of the problem verses in question. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, here's what Paul writes down. He's speaking to the Corinthian people, and here's what he says. He says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, 
and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So we can look at this passage and say, see, look here, this passage says that man is the head of woman. And in our understanding culturally, in our, our understanding of language, if you were to say that somebody is the head of somebody else, well, we would understand that headship as meaning authority and leadership. So yes, of course, if we read this passage in our own understanding, we would say, yes, men have authority over women. Men are the head of women. That makes sense, and we would just move on to the rest of the chapter. The problem is that this, this chapter, this Bible, was written in a different language. And when we look at the Greek, the Greek word Paul chooses to use here for head, he chooses to use the Greek word that means source, like the head of a river, and not authority. There are lots of other words for authority that would fit better here if Paul's desire was to mean that women were under the authority of men. But Paul uses the word meaning source here. And if you read the rest of this section of Scripture with the understanding of this Greek word meaning source, it makes a whole lot more sense. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8, this is what Paul says. He says, For man did not come from women, or from woman, but woman from man. And Paul seems to be drawing our attention back to the creation account, where God is the source of man, Adam, and then God uses man's rib as the source for woman, Eve. So even though much of this passage is confusing, one of the things that we can kind of say here with a fair bit of understanding is that this passage is not teaching male headship authority over women. Paul is trying to, to get the Corinthians to understand, hey, you guys understand this already. You know that Adam and then there was Eve, woman came from man as the source. Now, further to this point, when, head, when male headship is normally taught within Christian circles, it's usually partnered together with teaching that women should not have authority in the church at all. In fact, they shouldn't even speak in church. Some believe that women should be silent in church. And, and actually, in 1 Corinthians, it actually speaks to this. We're going to talk about this in a couple weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Actually, I think it's next week. Um, but we're going to talk about there because it, it says that there. So we've got to grapple with that passage there. But in this passage, people use this passage and then 1 Corinthians 14 to say that women should not even speak in church. The problem here is that in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, th this passage that people try to use to limit female authority or speaking in church, the problem here is that this passage actually speaks to women having the ability to speak in a church. It actually supports women, use, supports women using their gifts within the church. Look here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 to 5. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Did you see that there? Look again. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. This verse assumes that both men and women will be praying and prophesying during the gathering. 
It gives some rules around how that should happen, but it assumes that it's going to happen. There's going to be women that are praying and prophesying in the gathering, make sure they've got their head covered. Okay, so there's an assumption there that the gifts that the women have, they're being used within the gathering. Men who want to pray or prophesy should have their head uncovered, while women who want to pray and prophesy should have their heads covered. Now, we don't understand what that exactly means. I think that a lot of this is very cultural. So let's look at this. Rather than teaching male headship, this passage gives boundaries for how both men and women pray and prophesy during their gatherings with the assumption that both are happening. It seems to be in line with the culturally significant precedent-setting moment with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Don't you think that if women were not supposed to speak at all, that Jesus would have stopped the Samaritan woman and said, hey, wait a second, hold on. You can't go back and and tell the whole town that I'm the Messiah because it's not right for you to do that. But Jesus actually allows this woman to go and spread the word about who he is. That was a a very precedent-setting moment. And in fact, uh, this passage of Scripture, speaking to women using their gifts within the church, is in line with much of Scripture, where we see women from the Old Testament and the New Testament engaged and active in ministry both inside and outside the church. If Paul was actually stopping women from using their gifts in the church, he would be coming against much of the rest of Scripture and Jesus himself. And I don't think that's what Paul is doing here. Now, you may agree or disagree with me, but I think that that helps to clear up a little bit about what Paul is not saying here about male headship. But what is Paul saying Because this passage is not just about what he's not saying. We've got to understand what is Paul actually saying here. And this passage is, like I said before, a little bit confusing. Paul speaks about head coverings in this passage. And there's been confusion over this head coverings thing as well. In years gone by, uh, women kept their heads covered in churches. Even today, if you look at a lot of the churches in the, the, the southern part of America, you see women wear these, these amazingly um, huge hats. You know, they, we wouldn't be to sit this close in church today because you'd have to leave room for your hat. It's just this, this beautiful thing. I think the hats are very beautiful. But we don't do that here. I don't know if any women in the room right now have hats on. I'm not sure about you guys back at home or not, if you guys are wearing home, hats at home. But we just don't do that nowadays. We don't actually say that women have to wear a, ha- a head covering when they come into the church. As well, in this passage, it says, uh, it says the men should have their heads uncovered. But why? Why should men have their heads uncovered? What's going on there? Now, culturally, I remember I had a class uh, in high school, a Spanish class, and the guy who was the, that uh, taught the class, the teacher, was ex-military. And so we wore hats everywhere in school. People wore hats going into, into the classrooms, no problem. But in his classroom, he made everybody take their hats off because he said it was a sign of respect to come into the classroom and take your hat off. But that was his, his thoughts. That was his cultural understanding of hats. Do we, do we subscribe to that today? I mean, obviously, in half of this passage, it says women should have their head covered. In another half, it says men should have their head uncovered. But we don't ascribe to the first half. Are we still ascribing to the second half? Well, probably if we're not going to ascribe to the first half, why would we ascribe to the second half? The reason I'm going to propose to you today, the reason why this is not a big deal for us today is because it was culturally motivated. Let me explain, because it gets very interesting here. 
Contrary to popular opinion, not all women wore head coverings during this time. See, here's when we look at this passage, sometimes we say, well, the respectable women in Corinth wore head coverings. And so we say, well, this is just what Paul is talking about. If you want to be a respectable woman in the church, you'll do what the culture is doing. Because in the culture, they're wearing head coverings. So in the church, you should wear a head covering. But contrary to popular opinion, not all women wore head coverings during this time in Corinth. Actually, according to quite a few biblical scholars and historians, the only women who were allowed to wear a head covering in Corinth back in Paul's day were wealthy married women. Wealthy married women. And the reason they wore head coverings was to alert people that they were unavailable. So they, when they went around town, in order to alert everyone around them that they're unavailable, they would wear head coverings. But only the wealthy married women. In fact, there was a law, there was only one law, that protected women from being sexually assaulted at this time by men. And that one law was... If the woman's wearing a head covering, meaning she's married to a, a, a wealthy man or a, a man with some kind of power, if the woman has a head covering, you're not allowed to sexually assault her. Otherwise, fair game. That was the only law in the books. Is that not crazy? Is that not insane? So in a city known for incredible immorality, like Corinth had incredible immorality in it, the only thing that protected a woman from assault was to wear a head covering, but the only women who were allowed to wear head coverings were wealthy married women, women who were protected by their relationship to men. Can you imagine living in Corinth as a woman who was single or powerless or poor? What protection did you have from assault? None. So understanding this cultural reality, perhaps what Paul is doing here is calling the men to protect the women. Not just those who are wealthy or married to powerful people, but protect all women. Protect all women, whose source, initially at least, was men. Perhaps this passage calls the strong in the culture, the men, to protect the weak in the culture, the women. Perhaps Paul is saying, hey, your women should have head coverings on, even though they're only allowed to if they are, they're, they're married to wealthy men. Let them all wear head coverings. Single, poor, powerless, let them all wear head coverings because this protects them, and you as men should make sure they're protected. Because the men carried the power in this culture and the women didn't. That's one of the possibilities. It's actually a strong possibility for what Paul is speaking about in this passage. One of the problems with this passage, though, is that we don't know exactly what problem Paul is addressing. We don't, we don't have a clue. In some of the places, in, in the other places in Scripture, Paul says, hey, hey, here's the problem and here's the answer. But he doesn't do that here. He just begins to lay out a formula for what should be done. We're left to assume a little bit what the problem was. Is Paul actually addressing women who are worshiping inappropriately dressed? Is that what ha what's happening here? We don't know. Is he addressing a power imbalance, calling men to protect women? We, we don't know. Is Paul addressing something else altogether? We don't know. Another possibility for what Paul is addressing here, another strong possibility, is that the church, both the men and women, are beginning to blur the lines between the sexes. 
Perhaps the men are wearing their hair long and acting like women, and the women are cutting their hair short and acting like men. This is also something that happened in Corinth during the time. It was another cultural reality that happened at that time. In this case, this passage uh, does set up a return to the distinctiveness of men and women in worship. Not a limitation. See, both men and women are both praying and prophesying within the church. Not a limitation on their engagement based on their gender, but a celebration of the distinctiveness of gender and an invitation for all to serve fully male or fully female. That could be one reason why Paul tells the women to wear a feminine head covering while he tells the men not to. Well, the truth is that this this chapter, this first half of a chapter, is wildly debated. Like, there are just so many people trying to speak to this section of Scripture, and it would take us much longer than just this morning to suss out all the possible interpretations of this passage. But I think that we can come to a good conclusion for us today that we can say with a bit of certainty. Paul does not speak against women serving and using their gifts in the gathering. That's just not what this passage teaches Both men and women pray and prophesy together in this passage. There is, however, a distinctiveness to being male and female. And culturally at this time, there's a reason for women to wear a head covering. Whether it is to show this distinctiveness or whether it's to protect them, we we don't really know. But likely, it has more to do with the cultural context that they're sitting in and not directly speaking to us today about whether women should wear head coverings and men should not. I don't think it speaks to us today on whether we should do that or not. Now, the rest of chapter 11 has much less confusion to it. And as I walk through this bit, I'm going to walk through it briefly, but as we walk through it, I, want, I hope that you see how these two halves go together because the, the section break here between the first half of 1 Corinthians 11 and the second half, that section break would not have been in the original. So in the original, they would have kept on reading right through the whole chapter, right through the whole letter, actually. And so these two stories actually go together much more than we, th- we think they do. So this next half speaks to the practice of the Lord's Supper. Back here in Corinth, it looked way different. When they celebrated the Lord's Supper, it looked way different than what we're going to celebrate today. Today we've got the crackers and the juice. But back then, it was a feast. They called it the, the, the love feast or the agape feast. They would gather everybody together and they'd have this huge feast celebrating the Lord's Supper. At these feasts, all the church would come together and those who had plenty would give to those who had little so that everyone could celebrate together. The problem in Corinth was this, and it's another cultural thing. Culturally speaking, feasting was a regular occurrence in Corinth. People just feasted. They didn't have restaurants to go to. They'd either go to the temple or the rich people would open their homes up and invite all their friends over and they'd have a huge feast. And this was a regular occurrence. Um, In those feasts, the rich and the powerful would sit in one room together. They'd have one special room that was highly decorated and the food would be mounted and heaped all over the place and there'd be tons of of wine and drink and, and the people would gorge themselves and they would get drunk. This is what they would do at these giant feasts. Okay, now just just so you're with me here, we're talking about the the cultural feasts happening in Corinth, not the ones that are happening in the church, though there's a connection. 
Still out of the kindness of the, their hearts, culturally, uh, the rich and powerful, while they were having their feast, they'd have another room where they would invite the, the slaves and the servants and the poor to come and eat. And they wouldn't have heaps of food. They'd have kind of paltry amounts of food. They'd have kind of the, the cast-offs, the extra, the crumbs, would be in this other space for the poor and the slaves and the servants to be able to enjoy. The, the, poor, the poor and the powerless would go home from these feasts barely fed, just enough to survive, while the rich and the powerful would go away drunk and fat. This was the cultural norm for Corinth. And the sad part about this is that this practice had seeped into the church. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen: In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. It seems like they were doing the same thing, the same cultural practice that was happening in the rest of the city of Corinth. In Corinth, there was an imbalance of power, as is true of most cultures and societies. The problem was not that there was an imbalance in the culture. That was to be expected. Of course there's an imbalance in the culture. The culture follows after what's good for me. The problem was not that there was an imbalance in the culture. The problem was that there was an imbalance in the church. Both halves of chapter 11 speak to imbalances in power, first between men and women, and then between the rich and the poor. I think at least in some part, Paul is speaking to this imbalance. And we're going to see this come up again in chapter 12 as Paul begins to speak about the body the body, we, the body, have many parts, but some of the parts need special care. I think Paul is speaking to this imbalance in power again in chapter 12, which we'll talk about next week. This is not a new concept, of course, this imbalance of power. Jesus often speaks about caring for the little children and looking out for the needy. And Jesus seemed to have his greatest impact in places where the people were impoverished or hurting, not in the powerhouses of the world, but in the powerlessness places of the world. In fact, one of the things that stood out about the early church of Jesus Christ was that they looked after those who were powerless and poor. The early church looked after the powerless and poor. The early church lifted them up and made them equal people within the church. I wonder today, is this still what we are known for? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is a complicated chapter, certainly in the first half of it. And many, uh, many commentaries call this chapter of, of 1 Corinthians something like corrections in public worship, which is why I made the title for this sermon, Public Worship, which I think is the most terrible uh, and pretty lame title. It just has no power to it. Right? It's just like public worship, woohoo, there's not much to it. But I think one of the points that Paul is trying to make in 1 Corinthians is this, that the world around you is watching how you live the Christ life. The world around you is watching how you live this Christ life. And they're deciding whether or not Jesus is really real based on what they see. And here in chapter 11, Paul brings to attention two of the church's largest worship moments. The gathering together where they would pray and prophesy and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. 
And he's saying in both of these two things, there's stuff that's lacking. Paul begins to turn the church back to seeing in these activities, what would it look like for you to care about the powerless and the poor? The world was watching and the world today is watching as well. What does the world see? How are we relating to the powerless and the poor in our world today? I shared the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the beginning of the sermon today. Jesus revealed to this scandalous Samaritan woman that he was the Messiah, and then she became his first missionary. And there's many stories of Jesus interacting with the powerless and the poor, and each time Jesus treated them with honor and dignity. He saw them. He didn't just see them. He saw them. He loved them, and he empowered them. People noticed how Jesus treated the powerless and the poor. We sit in an interesting seat today. At one point in our lives, at one point in our lives, every single one of us was the scandalous Samaritan woman. We were the scandalous Samaritan woman. Three strikes and we should have been out. But Jesus treated us with honor and dignity and he welcomed us into his family. And today we're being called to be like Jesus to the scandalous Samaritan women in our culture the people who are three strikes and they're out, the people that are poor and powerless, how can we welcome them into this family as well? What does that look like for us today? We're going to move into the, our, our time of, of celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. Here's what Paul said. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What an an insane imbalance of power we witness within the Lord's Supper. Jesus, who is all-powerful, and we who are powerless to the very bottom of the, of the barrel. And Jesus takes of what he has of himself. This is my body. This is my blood. He takes of what he has to raise us up so that we can be with him. That's crazy. It's crazy. Jesus is calling us to do something similar. If you're a follower of Jesus today, we invite you to share in communion with us, whether you call this your church home or not. We have open communion here, which means we invite everyone to celebrate together. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, you've heard about Jesus today. You've heard about him. He loves you. He sees you. He treats you with honor and dignity, and he wants to raise you up. He invites you to come into his family. Jesus came to welcome the poor and the powerless into his family, which is all of us. Scripture says that if we turn away from our broken ways and believe in Jesus Christ, if we welcome him into our lives, we will be saved. And you can do that right now if you've never done that before. You can just say in your heart, Jesus, I turn from my broken ways and I turn to you. I accept all the riches that you have for me that is yourself. I believe in you, Jesus, and I want you to come into my life today. Thank you, Jesus, for welcoming me into your family. Amen.
So as we sit in this space of trying to ask the question, Jesus, what do you have for us in this? Jesus, what are you calling me to do in this? How are you calling me to respond to the poor and the powerless around me? How are you calling me to be Jesus to those who need you, Jesus? As we sit, I want to encourage you to, to think deeply about communion today and the idea that the powerful humbled himself and gave up his power to be able to present to us the opportunity to be raised up to life with him and to be seated with him in heavenly places. What does it look like for us to use the power that we have to humble ourselves, to put that aside and raise others up as well? So I bless you today, church, to see the opportunities put before you, to see Jesus and to hear his voice well. As he leads us and he guides us through this week, are there opportunities, are there opportunities Jesus is putting before us to either use our power to set it aside for those who don't have power? May I bless you, church, to hear the voice of Jesus, to see Jesus leading you and guiding you in this week, to fill you afresh with his Holy Spirit even this morning, for you to know that you are loved, that you are seen, that you've been given honor and dignity, and to walk in the way of Jesus. In Jesus' powerful, wonderful name, amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you'd like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.